The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Um, as we come into this passage this morning, um, I really want you to think about the question that John is putting before God's people, and that is, how are you loving I mean, just think right now, the people in your life that God has given you and, and tasked you with the responsibility to love, how are you doing? Have you really understood what God has called you to and what He's saved you for when it comes to the task of love? And I really want you to get at least five people in your mind right now <laughs> That you know God is calling to you, calling you to love, whether parents, whether spouse, whether roommate or friends or coworkers or um, fellow church members. Who is God? Who are the first names that come to your mind? If you want to write them down in your notes on your phone, or uh, if you've got a pen, you can do that on your bulletin. But who is God calling you to love? What are the names that come to mind right now? I'm going to give you 30 seconds to think about it. So, Father, we pray this morning that Your Spirit would open our hearts and minds, give us power in Your love to be able to address the sin of lack of love in our lives. Father, no one in here, definitely me, fulfills the command to love you with all heart, mind, soul, and strength and neighbor's self. And so, God, I pray that you would, over the next few minutes and then weeks ahead, would you open our hearts to how wide and long and deep and high is your love for us, a love that you have saved us to and with a love that you are calling us to be a part of in this world, that the world might know that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, and that all of this is not a hoax, but it's reality. Oh God, would You come by Your Spirit and do what only You can do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that most of us in this room uh, saw the second-to-last playoff game that the Grizzlies played against the Spurs. Um, it, was, uh, it was an amazing game. It came down, I think it went into overtime, and Gasol hit the winning shot um, to, to win the game and to send us back to Memphis. Um, but if you remember that game, you remember the commentators over and over and over again marveling at the play of Mike Conley. It was almost as if no one had ever seen Mike Conley before that game. I mean, the commentators were like, you know, well, he's really making a name. People are seeing what, what Conley is all about. And he, I think he scored 38 for, I can't remember. It was an amazing game for him. But the reason that Conley doesn't get the respect that many others do, I think, is because Conley doesn't run his mouth. Conley lets his game speak for itself. And that's why we love Mike Conley. Because what he does, week in, week out, day in, day out, is he goes to work. He knows his job, and he does his job. 
And church, what John is telling us this morning is that we better know our job. And we better be about our job. Because it's very simple. Love. 28 times in uh, practically all of them in um, chapter uh, 3 verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 3, um, John uses the, the word love as a verb 28 times. 18 times he uses it at a, as a noun. So 46 times in uh, chapter 3, 1 through 5, 3, um, John is calling us to love. Do you think it's important? <laughs> As you remember, if you've been with us, and I know we've got a lot of uh, a lot of visitors this morning, but if you've been with us, you know that John has been dealing with false teaching. He's been dealing with uh, false teachers that are, have come inside the church, and they're confusing believers to the point that many believers are questioning whether or not they are Christians. Many in the church are asking, "Am I a true Christian?" And so what John does is he writes so that believers in the church might know that they are Christians, but they might know so on the right grounds and not be led astray. And he begins by telling us in chapter 1 that a true Christian walks in the light, not the darkness. A true Christian is, is obedient. His life is moving. To his, he takes obedience seriously. And we're going to talk about that more at the end. And yet he also combines that with this, this teaching. He says, hey, you have to be walking in the light. You have to be moving toward obedience. But then he says this, but he who is without sin, if he says he's without sin, he's a liar and the truth's not in him. And it seems like a contradiction. It seems like just at first that it's just like any other religion. Be obedient, obey God, and then find out at the end whether or not you're in. But John says no. Yes, obedience is central to being a Christian, and, and walking in the light is central to being a Christian, but none of us can do it. And therefore, another central reality of knowing that we're a Christian is if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, and really our Christ. Is He our Savior? Do we recognize sin in our lives? Are we dealing with sin in our lives? And are we running to the Christ, the very Son of God? And if, if you are a person who is seeking to walk in the light, and yet your darkness, the darkness in you and the darkness in your flesh and life is being constantly exposed, then, then you are dealing with sin, you are conscious of your sin, and you're running to Jesus for His forgiveness, that person will produce a life of love. The distinguishing mark capital T, capital H, capital E, the distinguishing mark, the thing that comes out when you are believing that Jesus is your Christ for your specific and real sins is love. That is growing from humility and gratitude. It's love. A Christian loves, and John tells us he, he doesn't just love in word, but he loves in deed. You see your neighbor in it without, and you have means, and you're not sharing. Don't think you're loving. Love is not some generic thing. It is a tangible reality. And so what we need to see this morning, and what we're going to kind of marinate on, is one point. Can you believe it? It's true. One, a one-point sermon. We are born to love. We are born to love. 
Does anybody, how many in here have seen Steve Harvey's uh, new show, Little Big Shots? All right, a few people. Well, by Sunday night, I'm ready to turn my brain off and something else on. And uh, uh, I've seen it several times. And basically, Steve Harvey brings on children with incredible um, talents or gifts. You know, I saw one like, I don't know, six-year-old singing this fantastic opera, you know, and uh, an eight-year-old dribbling two basketballs and, you know, just all those kinds of stuff. Um, and, and you watch all these things, and as you watch them, one thought comes over and over. Man, they were born for that. And what John is saying is, is that that the world should look at the church and should look at your life and my life and say they are born to love. Look at how they love. It's not, oh, look at how they know their doctrine. And that is not to minimize doctrine. But as we'll see in a minute, doctrine serves love. It's not look at even their spiritual gifting, but look at how they love each other and look at how they love the world around them, the people around them. And dear friends, we are failing. Barna put out some um, recent statistics. They put out some comments, uh, statements, if you will, to see um, who just in the U.S. population agreed and then who in the church, evangelical Christians, agreed with these statements. Here's the first one. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. Here's, this is the new religion. 91% of adults and 76% of practicing Christians agreed completely or somewhat. Number two. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89% of adults, 76% of Christians. Number three, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 86% of American adults, 72% of Christians said yes. Number four, the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% of adults, 67% of Christians that what is the chief end of man for you, historic Presbyterians? The chief end of man is to enjoy it life as much as possible. No! That's the catechism of the church today, apparently. 79, 61, or what is it? 67%. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of American adults, 61% of practicing Christians. The religion of our day centers on individual desires and personal fulfillment of the individual. Don't tell me I'm wrong or in sin, but normalize my sin that I might love myself the way I am. The problem with this, if we believe, and, I, and there, pro, there has to be many in this room that would agree with this, these new religious statements. And these are religious statements. And, and let me just push back on you a little bit, okay? Um, if you believe that there is a God who created a people to be fulfilled by Himself, it's perfect what um, Terence talked, he, he used uh, Piper's, um, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with Him. Uh, Terrence and I haven't even talked about this sermon, but that is the thrust of the Gospel. Um, if you believe as a Christian, if you're a Christian that believes that God created a people for Himself to satisfy deeply by Himself, 
Hear that statement. Yes, we were made to be satisfied. Absolutely. But what were we made to be satisfied with? Ultimately and deeply by God Himself. Okay? If you believe that, then you can't believe that love is allowing someone to find fulfillment any way they want to. Because it can't be done if there is a God who made us for Himself and who made us to only be ultimately satisfied by Himself, then it's not love to let friends and family find love, look for love in any way that they want. However, if love is supreme, it must dictate how we have that conversation. And that is where the church is failing. It's not that we as Christians, I mean, you can find many cases in which, you know, people are not standing for what biblical truth is. But here's the deal. Many have stood for biblical truth, but they've done it in a way that is so self-righteous, that is so condemning and arrogant, that we have pushed people so far away that the gospel cannot even be heard. You see, we have failed, and and Jesus informs how we are to have this conversation. And, and it should be a conversation, not a sermon, you sinners. It should be a conversation. How, but what is the tone of that conversation? Matthew 7, verses 1-7. through 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Okay, so a Christian should not be known as the judge of the home or the neighborhood or the church or the city or the world. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? When there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, friends, any time that we speak God's truth as one having a black belt in the truth, we absolutely polarize fellow sinners because we project the image that we don't see ourselves in the same class. It is a classist mentality for us to go to the world self-righteously. Why? Because the heart of the Gospel, and I love that these tables are adorning my right and left this morning. The heart of the Gospel, the the drama that Jesus wants the church to, to rehearse publicly, tangibly, visibly, over and over and over again, is the fact that when we were still sinners, Christ was broken for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The One offended, the Righteous One lived and died and rose, and we have nothing to do with our salvation. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And even your faith is a gift. You can take no credit for your salvation or anyone else's. Because salvation is of the Lord. And what 
posture. That puts us in the posture of gratitude, not self-righteous, arrogant judgers of those around us. Do you see that? We are indebted. We're an indebted people. But it's not indebted to work up acts of righteousness so that God will love us, keep loving us. Because there's nothing we can do to add to His salvation. Nothing. But we are indebted. Listen, listen to the debt that we, are, that we all possess as Christians. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And friends, love is not about me and my desires and my wants. Love is about God and the other. Do you see how gratitude takes us out? And the new religion takes us in. What are my desires? I just need to be true to my desires and you must accept me. That's not love. What, that, what the Bible refers to that as slavery. Jesus came to live and die to free us from that but not free us to self-righteousness, but to free us to a life of laying ourselves down as Jesus laid His life down for us, for our enemies. For our enemies. That's what Christ has done for us. Listen to Paul in Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Hallelujah! We can throw off the law and live any way we want to and be self-centered and mandate everybody love us. No. Stand firm then, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For you were called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you uh, bite and devour one another, church, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Oh, dear friends, may we be a church that loves and loves passionately. May we be a community that lays our life down for one another. If there are cliques at this church, if there are groups in this church, may they be broken up for the sake of the Gospel. If someone feels shunned, if someone's left out, if, may we notice. If there are needs not being met, may we notice. And we're about to get to that in a second. Let's marinate on, on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. What I'm doing this week, and I should have... Uh, anyway, what I'm doing this week is I'm introducing how we're going to finish the book of John. I, I had planned to finish today the book of John. But we're going through at least the middle of June. Because what he is saying, this is the crescendo. Everything that, that John has been doing in 1 John is building up to this argument for love. And we're going to marinate on it. But right now, let's marinate on 1 Corinthians 13. Listen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, wow! Somebody, our budget is low. We need somebody to do this, alright? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul is saying here is I can possess all the Christian bling. I can volunteer for everything. I can... I can have a voice. I can, whatever it is that, that we feel like we must have to feel Christian. I, I can have great giftedness. I can give away a lot of money. I can be part and parcel to, um, leading some, some, uh, strategic justice initiatives. I can, whatever it is, I can do all this stuff. And if I have not love, I am nothing. 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 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved your church, loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Husbands, we are nothing. Nothing. Ah, oh, but look at my business accomplishments and look at... Nothing. This applies to us as groups as well as individuals. Let me take the group first. And this is something we deal with a lot at Downtown Church. And, and let me just say, you know, some of us love that we do this and some of us don't love that we do this. Um, but we talk about justice a lot and we talk about it in our neighborhood in Memphis. And we do so because not to exalt one issue over another. Over, I'm sure that I'm guilty of that. Absolutely. Um, but the reason that we do this, in, and the reason that we hound on injustice issues in our city, um, is because we feel that it's a huge failure of love. And so... That Memphis, Tennessee is the poorest city in the country and yet one of the most churched. If, if that doesn't grieve your heart and soul in some way, and, and I'm not saying, therefore, quit your job as a lawyer, doctor, engineer, healthcare professional, whatever it is, and go work at a nonprofit. That's not what I'm saying. It, it, you know, housewife, husband, child, uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that. Each and every one of us, if we are Christians, must be concerned about it and must be thinking deeply about it. Because 1 John 3 tells us if anyone has the world's goods, it doesn't say they're rich, it doesn't say that they're, you know, it just says if you have the world's goods and you see his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. And that's what we must do. And I'm not talking about the panhandler who's on every corner. Many of them are just that. I'm talking about systemic poverty. If anyone closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, or in, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. I saw an article this week. Um, on a book that a man by the name of Richard Rothstein has written called The Color of Law. 
and it talks about redlining. And in the history of our country, back in 1934, when the FHA was brought, um, uh, was created, how um, white suburban communities were targeted for loans at the expense of African American communities. So African American communities could not get loans um, that white um, citizens could. And the disparity that we have in housing right now is largely due to that. And his whole point is we must um, segregate our neighborhoods. And what's happening across the street, the, um, the, 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 the tearing down of foot homes, the last housing project in Memphis, and rebuilding it to look to, to mixed use, um, mixed income purposes like Claiborne Point. Uh, Claiborne Homes was just like Foot Homes, if you don't know the history, uh, just, what, seven years ago, six years ago. And they tore those down and built the beautiful homes that many in our body now live in. And they're going to do the same over here. And that is good. We are taking steps. But all of us, uh, there's so much more to do. All of us should have this on our radar, not to feel guilty, but to ask, what does love look like in Memphis, Tennessee? Right here in the city, what does it look like? It doesn't look like walking around feeling guilty. God has freed us from guilt. And He's empowered us to, to love. Do we see our brothers and our sisters and want to love or do we assume a person of lower has a lower value because they don't possess a higher financial value? You see, the thing about love is it's personal. It's not hypothetical. I'm on a um, a team of pastors that was started after the bridge closing. Back was it June or July? I can't remember, but back last summer. Um, 50 churches in Memphis came together and we just hired an executive director and I'm so excited about it. I don't know that I'm free to announce who the executive director is yet, uh, but he's, he's a very well-known uh, Memphis um, believer and, and figure. And maybe next week I'll find out if I can tell you. But all that to say, um, we are... Um, um, working on, are uniting to work on justice issues and re- reconciliation in the city. Fifty different churches, very diverse, um, and it's it's very very exciting. And what we are seeking to do is to give churches opportunities to know needs and you and bring our resource, our human resources together, bring our people together to actually build lanes for us to to run in to be able to bring healing to our city. And those are the kind of things that love propels. Um, It's exciting to see what's happening in Memphis, Tennessee. But again, we have much to do. And so that's the justice. That's just one little element. There's so much more we can talk about. Educational system... justice system and so forth. But let's move on. We're going to deal with a lot of things in this mini-series. But now let's talk about just our neighbors. Let's talk about our neighbors. Um, I, I read a book when Rachel and I were on vacation a couple of weeks ago called Good Faith. It's by the guys that, that do the Barna um, statistics and a uh, really good book called Good Faith. And... One of the failures that it exposes in the church is how the church has dealt 
with those in the body that have grown up in the body, that are part of the body, that um, have same-sex attraction. And it, one of the primary things that um, in the discussion in the book that it does that was really powerful to me. I've read a ton and had many conversations along this line. But one of the, I think the most powerful things that it said, and again, we're going to talk more about this as we keep going in this mini-series. Um, it interviewed uh, a woman in the body, in the church, that whose struggle is that. And her, um, this is what she said. She said, I can live... With, without having, I can live without sex, basically what she said. But, I can't live without intimacy. And we're gonna show that the, the ripple effects of that comment have flowed through me in a powerful way. And, and what she's saying is this, is that what the church has done with those that possess same-sex attraction, I know there have to be several in this room. Absolutely. So hear me. And feel free to email me, call me, meet with me um, if I need to be saying more, if I need to say this in a different way. I'm completely open, but I'm going to say this. The failure that we, one of the failures that we've had at the church is not being a community that welcomes those that have same-sex attraction into our families, into our communities, because that's, the church is the place where the world is to get intimacy. This is the place that we are to have intimacy. And let me, let me transfer now to, um, to those who are single. We talk about singleness as if it's a disease, as if it's HIV or something. Oh, if you're single. Lord have mercy. You know, I mean. And yet, the growing population of singles, especially in downtown, um, you single girls, 25 to 35, you are the dominant demographic moving to downtown Memphis. Uh, you would think the guys would be coming too because of that. I don't know where they are. But anyway, uh, guys are kind of, you know, just give them a while. They'll catch up. Um, but... The church has been so neglectful to so exalt marriage as the end. And, oh, you know, we're going to pray for you single people to get married. What? So what, my life has no value until I'm married? That is the impression that we give. And I have a feeling if we uh, took a sampling of our singles, they would probably say, yeah, even at downtown church. And we can certainly have, I'm open to those conversations as well. But if you think about, um, you know, what, here's the message that the church sends single people. Don't have sex before you're married. Again, you can live without sex, but you can't live without intimacy. Are we building deep communities? Uh, are, are we that are married opening our homes? <laughs> you know, uh, opening the lives of our children. Uh, opening our homes to those who are single and saying, you don't have to wait until you're married to feel and be a, to, to, to have, you know, the, the experience of family. And that's especially true right now because so many of you singles are from out of town. You don't have family here. You can talk, and then we can go to married couples with children who don't have family here and never can have a night off. And those of us who do have family here that keeps our children all the time, we ought to keep the children. I mean, we can just go on and on. But do you see how Christian community, if at the very heart of our community is love, self-sacrificing love, 
how we are the only community that can bring healing to the world. What's going to heal violence in this city? It's not one. It's not streets programs, and they would agree. Reggie Davis, would, Ken Bennett would stand right here and say, "Yes, it's the church. It's the church, and we have to do it relationally." Jesus affirms this as well. We'll wrap it up and go to the table. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is Jesus, alright? There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And I love this statement. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> What's the greatest commandment, church? What is our calling? It's to be a radical community of loving men, women, and children. And that is the fruit of our salvation. So what do you do this morning? If you're like me and you know that you have failed in more ways than you can count, you come to this table. Because the difference between a non-Christian response to the law of condemnation and, and, and self-exposure and a Christian is radically different. A non-Christian hears that and says, either, no, I'm not guilty, those people over there, they don't deserve my love, or I will go try to be better. But a Christian says, yes, I'm naked before it. You got me. If I have to live up to that standard, I can't do it, and there's, I'm done. But Jesus. You see, Jesus stands. Jesus is the difference between religion and Christianity because Jesus has already been condemned for all of our lack of loving. And so we can come to Him and we can receive forgiveness and we can beg for the Spirit to empower us to get over us and to give our lives to those around us this week. Not to be saved, but because we already are saved. And so may we come to the tables this morning with hearts that are open and hungry to feast on grace, to feast on forgiveness, that we might be empowered to go love in a radical way and fail dramatically and come back again for more grace to go work to love, <laughs> to fail dramatically, to come back, to keep us humble, to keep us dependent, and to keep us feasting on Jesus and not our own pride and self-righteousness. Lord Jesus, would You make that so at Downtown Church. Thank You for the message of the Gospel. Thank You that You are, have freed us to love. And oh God, I pray that we would hear our marching orders this morning. 
And that, oh God, we would drink Your love in at these tables today. That we might experience Your love, experience Your forgiveness, that we might go give it to those around us. Father, may it be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.